0: And um, as we're just about to begin, we want to we worship God by looking at his holy word. And we are continuing on in our series in the book of Romans. Paul, um, throughout Romans, has been building a case for why we are all condemned and deserving of wrath before God. And then last week we looked in the end of Romans chapter 3 and saw how, how really all are justified only by by faith, and all are made righteous only by God's grace, and how God is actually just. He's right to forgive because he's provided the way to forgive as well. And so this week we'll be continuing on to see, um, is it really only faith? Is that how we're saved to begin with? How does it continue? Um, How are Christians to maintain or keep the faith? What does that look like? And then next week we'll be talking about what is The actual faith that we have look like. So this week is is all about faith alone. Really, this is the heart of the entire Protestant Reformation is by faith alone. We'll be unpacking that in verses 1 through 16. So if you're here, my name is Matt Rawlings, by the way. Welcome to you. Um, We're glad that you have joined together with us. Um, We are not a church that is alone. We partner together with other churches throughout the area, and we are in the process of Um, affiliating with uh, a network of churches, a family of churches named Acts 29. I want to give you an update about one of those churches that we have been helping to sponsor, a church plant that we've been helping to fund over the last couple of years. Um, It has been in Northeast Columbia. Um, It's uh, Redeemer Church of Northeast Columbia. There you go. It's it's simple to remember. A guy named Braden Greer has been leading that church. Um, They have just decided over the last few weeks as they've gotten counsel from they're sending church in Columbia and from us as well as uh, other church planning groups that um, for now, Braden is going to take a step away from pastoral ministry. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong, nothing bad, no sin issues. Um, he's gotten to the place where um, they had some people leave to move to other places, and the finances have dipped in that church plant. The, the number of people coming has dipped, and he's in a place where he's no longer in faith to lead. Um, there is nothing behind the scenes, just so you know. Um, we are in full support, fully in faith for whatever God has for Brayden Next. Um, so that church plant group, which is really kind of not really grown beyond the couple care groups they've had up in Northeast Columbia, um, they're going to be uh, become a part of the church that's really about 25 minutes away um, in Columbia. And then they're trying to figure out this morning, what are the next steps that we take as a church Um, Braden's going to continue to be a part of the church and serve them any way he can Um, but for the future he's not looking to do pastoral ministry there anymore and they're trying to figure out hey do we continue on as we are do we just become a part of Riverside Church or do we ask somebody else to come here so they're in the process of trying to determine that and uh, that's this morning's meeting for them so I'm going to begin actually by praying for their church and then I'll conclude by praying for our church church but if you would join with me in praying for them for the Greer family that God gives them wisdom for the church plant there that God gives them all wisdom as well and that that God helps us as well as we look to plant churches so let's pray together Father thank you that it is only by your grace that all of us exist lord lord thank you that that a sign of of health is not always that individual local churches stay there, Lord. But Lord, thank you that you are continuing to build your church. Thank you that your gospel ministry remains fruitful, that the message of your good news is powerful, Lord. And that's what our hope is in. Our trust is in you. Our trust is in your good news. Our trust is in the gospel to be the power of God for salvation to all who believe God, our trust as well is, is for ultimately your eternal church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. God, we don't know what you have in store for Northeast Columbia, Lord, but we do know that you are sustaining them, you are caring for them, and we ask that you would continue to do so. God, we ask that you would care for and provide for Braden and Christy and their family, Lord, as. As their finances have been lacking over the last few months, God, I I pray that you would provide for them as a family. I pray for you provide for um, that group who's gathered together for the church plant for that season. Lord, thank you that those labors have not been in vain, but Lord, people have come to Christ through that church and deepened in the faith, and so Father, I pray for continued fruit for the people who remain. God, I pray for wisdom, for the leadership of that church, Lord, and, and for the East Riverside Church as well, God. God, I pray for your grace and your goodness. Lord, we trust in you. We have faith in you no matter what circumstances look like. God, thank you that you sustain our church. Lord, thank you that you've graciously provided. Thank you, God, for your goodness to each and every one of us here. Lord, thank you that our trust ultimately is not in any person or church, but Lord, our trust is in you. And thank you that our trust is secure because of that we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4 where you're reading verses 1 through 16. I think I told you a week ago or so that you know there's a tradition that people stand for the reading of God's word and maybe in a few weeks we'll be doing that so I want to keep getting the word out there so it doesn't freak you out when we actually ask you to stand but um, there's a tradition that that gives honor and um, shows that God's word is unique by standing for the reading of God's word. So we're not going to stand today, but let's stand in our hearts at least and give honor to, to something that's unique. It's God's holy inspired word. It's the only inspired words you're going to hear today that are truly and fully inspired by God. And that's these first 16 verses of Romans chapter 4. So let's read his word together. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Abraham. He received the sign of circumcision. Oh, sorry. Uh, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give me words to speak by your spirit. I pray that you would illuminate your word to our hearts, to our minds. God, I pray that we would revel that our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. God, I pray that we would rejoice that our Christian walk is by faith alone. God, I pray that you would encourage and give hope that it's not by works, but it's by faith alone. And God, I pray that you give us joy this morning, joy and comfort. In your name we pray, Lord, and, and help us pay attention to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the, um, in the movie that some today, maybe my kids would consider a classic or maybe at least a modern classic, Finding Nemo. It's it's one of the main characters is Dory, and she provides comic relief to the whole movie, and she's a fish. She's lost her way. She can't find her family. She's always forgetting what she's supposed to do. She's never quite getting it right. She's always messing up. Um, she's always forgetting her way, literally. She doesn't know where to go, what to do. She She's very forgetful, that's really a picture of a lot of us, but she kind of bumbles into things, but what drives her is this mantra throughout the movie, and if you're an adult watching the movie, at least when I had kids, that mantra kind of got a little old after a while. Does anybody remember what that was? And Dory would just continually repeat this mantra, it was just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, and it was was kind of grated on your nerves, it was this, this overly optimistic, happy, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, and everything will work out fine was kind of the main message. If you just keep swimming, if you work hard enough, if you just keep trying, really it's the main message of the movie, if you just keep swimming, if you just keep trying, if you just keep working, if you only persevere, or maybe just like if you're a little older, you heard the Brady Bunch sing, keep on, keep on, keep it on. If you just keep going, then everything's gonna work out okay. And, you know, I think the movie resonated with a lot of us because we like to think that if we just keep working hard enough, if we just persevere, if we only believe in, in our efforts, and if we just keep swimming, everything's going to work out fine. Now, the movie's not exactly realistic because then, in the other parts of the movie, we'll talk about that later, you see fish getting eaten. What about those fish? They, they, they swam and it didn't work out so Well, I think, though, that the reason why that message was so popular is because it's really, ultimately, a humanistic, self-centered message. And it, it, it speaks to, to human pride. It speaks to our desires to want to have some contribution, to want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. If we just keep trying hard enough, we can make it. You know, it's the you can do it. It's the, you know, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh, gosh darn it, people like you. Just keep swimming, Right? And we like the message because it gives us hope in ourselves and the power of hard work and, and perseverance. But, you know, it, that doesn't work out so well in life. But, you know, it's, most world religions are about just keep swimming or maybe just keep working, just keep doing Most world religions appeal to this this innate sense of human pride that we have that we want to take some credit. We want to have something to do with our own rescue, with our own salvation, with ultimately our, our right standing before God. And we want to take confidence in that. And all the religions of the world, they look for confidence apart from God by swimming, by works. And they rely on that principle of being accepted by God, that if we do enough works, everything will be okay. And you know what, in Paul's day, there were many religious people who thought that, okay, wait a minute, now we understand that we really needed Jesus to be saved, but in order to to maintain our salvation, we have to just keep working. And by the way, people who aren't like us, who don't come from the same background, need to be like us, they need to keep working too. Paul was writing to the church in Rome that was full of both Jewish Christians who had probably brought the faith to Rome, they become believers, they were truly believers in Jesus, and it was also full of Gentile Christians who did not have a Jewish background, who were not circumcised, did not keep the law, and there was most likely a conflict happening, and, and a lot of the book of Romans is meant to address this most likely, is that there was this conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles, between those who were from a religious background, those who were not. And they said, well, now, you know what? Now that you've become a Christian like us Jews, then you really need to understand that we keep our faith by works. And Paul's addressing that, and he's saying, no. He's already already brought to them the message that salvation, righteousness, comes by faith, um, by the grace of God. It comes alone by faith but what he's addressing now is that really it was always about faith alone and that even for the jews for those who are religious they were never made right with god never made just with god by their works and that's important for all of us because if if salvation is kept by works as paul's going to show us later on then then really none of us have any hope at all Because if it can be kept by works, that means that it can be secured by works to begin with. But what he shows us is salvation is always by faith alone. There were some words that the the reformers used as they were looking to go back to the Bible. They rediscovered Romans. Martin Luther rediscovered the book of Romans, really, and what it really meant. And as he was leading a Bible study through the book of Romans, he discovered the truth of Scripture that, wait a minute, we don't keep our salvation by what we do. Why is that important for us? I think because all of us can be tempted to have our confidence in God after we become believers. We're tempted to have our confidence in God be related to our performance before God or our ability to keep swimming, to keep working. So the Apostle Paul, he's saying, That the Gentiles, or the Jews for that matter, they don't keep the law to keep rightness before God, to to continue to be right before God. And it's a question that not only did the church then need to, to, to be reminded of the answer to, but we need to be reminded of the answer to it every day. You know, I think about most days. You know, last week was a wonderful spiritual high for me. And um, last Sunday, I was rejoicing in the fact that we have a righteousness that's been imputed or accredited to us. We have Christ's very own righteousness. And I hope that your soul was stirred as we realize that you actually possess the very righteousness of Christ. It's been credited, given to you, and that God looks at you with that righteousness. But you know what happened this week for me, what happens for a lot of us? We can go from that spiritual, wonderful high of realizing, wait a minute, God actually credits and gives us the righteousness of his own son Jesus, the perfect righteousness, you know what happens? We mess up, we, we lack faith, we, we stumble, we fail, we fall. And then subtly what creeps in is this, this message again, the devil creeps in, the world of flesh around us and says, you know what, no. God's not really pleased with you still. You've got to keep the law. It's not really by faith alone. It's faith alone to begin with, but not faith alone to continue with. And so we all need to hear really what Romans says to us, what Romans 4 says to us. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul, he repeats so many themes, because these really are central to the Christian walk, to our faith, because all of us fail, all of us fall, and all of us can't keep swimming. So do we secure our ability to stand rightly before God by what we do? Well, the answer we've seen is no. And so now he's going to answer the question of, do we keep it? And his answer, really, it's the main theme of these first 16 verses. It's that by faith alone we're credited as righteous. By faith alone we're credited as righteous. And I would say we remain righteous by faith alone. Because we are credited by faith alone as righteous, We remain righteous by faith alone. And you know, you think about it any good Jew or any reader of the Old Testament, if you've ever read the Old Testament, you're like, well, then what is all this law stuff there for? Why do we have so much law keeping? Isn't God about keeping the law? It seems to be really important. But Paul is really careful. He goes back and he explains that law keeping is only after we're accepted by God. Is that possible? And what he's careful to do is he goes back to the very beginning of God's chosen people, the very start of the Jewish race, and he shows it's it's never been about works. And so what we're going to see really in verses 1 through 5 was that the faith of Abraham was, I mean, that the righteousness of Abraham was always about faith alone. So we're going to see that it was faith alone for Abraham. It wasn't works for Abraham. It wasn't righteousness that he had done. It was always faith alone For Abraham. Look down your Bibles. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He says, What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. You know, I know that the the story I opened up with about finding Nemo, it's it's a fairy tale, but because you know, after all, features a bunch of talking fish. But the fish are personified and and it's the story of many who believe in good works alone. But it's delusional, isn't it? The movie, it doesn't mention all the fish who were eaten. And you see that happening like in the opening scenes. What happens is Nemo's mom gets eaten. You know, it's a tragic beginning to the movie. (laughs) This jarring picture. Her keeping on swimming didn't help her so much. Not everyone can swim the same. Not everybody can keep on swimming. Not everybody's able to do the same amount or kind of works. Not, not all people are able to keep on keeping on. We're flawed. We fail. We stumble. How about you? Do you ever, you ever stumble? You ever fail? You ever get to the place where you just can't keep going? You know, some fish, some people won't make it. Some get eaten. Some die before the end of the movie. Some can't keep going on the own. You know, even, even Dory, she was privileged to be found by, by Nemo and his dad. And they guided her. You know, the, the Jews, they, they really never could make it fully on their own. They never could fully please God. They couldn't even find God on their own. They, they always needed someone to guide them, to lead them along their way. It was never their works that saved them, that kept them. And what Paul is saying is that it's not about whether you're a part of the privileged people of God, the Jews, um, by birth. It's about whether you're a part of God's people by faith. And it's always by faith alone. If God will justify, he says, the, or make righteous and circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, and that's always been his plan, then, then the question is, how in the world does Abraham and the promises that God made him, how do they relate to God and his people today? And so Paul wants the church in Rome, and he wants all those who come afterwards, he wants us to know, is that not only are the Jews children of Abraham by the promise, so are we children of Abraham by the promise. And look look down in in verse 2. It says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What's Paul doing there? He's immediately saying, you know, if Abraham really could have been justified by works, then he would have had something to be boasted about, but clearly he was not justified before God by works. Abraham couldn't boast that he was made righteous by God from his works, because think about it, after Abraham believed God to begin with, he was called out of Ur of Chaldees, what did he do? He goes down to the area of Canaan, and he goes there for a little while. But then, then if you follow along the story of Abraham in in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham goes from the area of Canaan, and there's a famine that happens. And so then Abraham goes to Egypt. But what does Abraham do in Egypt? He's fearful. He doesn't perfectly trust God or obey God. And so he's going into Egypt, and he's like, my wife is, is really gorgeous, you know, today you might use you know terms that make every guy uncomfortable when you talk about your wife that way and say she's smoking hot. You know, um, his wife was so so attractive that he was worried that people in Egypt would kill him to get his wife. And so the very first thing this great man of faith does is he actually breaks the law. He he breaks the moral law of even the Gentiles at that time, and he lies and he says, "Oh, she's really my sister." Because he thinks, hey, if it's my sister, maybe he would be nice to me because of that. And then he sins against his wife and Pharaoh because Pharaoh notices his wife; she's so attractive that he's like, hey, I want her to be my wife. And so Pharaoh takes her as his wife. God spares her from consummating that, but but Abraham lied and didn't even object. He didn't even say, hey, Pharaoh, by the way, hey, by the way, hey, 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 that's my wife. He was a loser. Imagine today. And and Abraham had no basis for boasting in his works. He had nothing to brag about or be proud about before God. He lied about his wife being his sister. He didn't object when she was taken to be Pharaoh's wife. And so the question is, if Abraham wasn't made right by works, because clearly his works weren't good enough, then how was he made right in his relationship with God? And, and Paul answers that. He actually quotes in Genesis 15, almost verbatim from the Septuagint, and he says, for what does Scripture say? Look down your Bibles in verse three. He says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Look in Genesis 15, five. We have it for you on the overheads here. He says, and he brought him outside. God has just... He's, he's reaffirmed the promise after Abraham has just finished messing up. God's brought him back out of Egypt. Um, Abraham has been successful in some military campaigns, God, and yet he's still in doubt. He's still wondering, God, will you really bring about your promises? And so God takes him outside somehow, and he says, look towards the heaven and number the stars. He says, if you're able to number them. Obviously, it's rhetorical. Who in the world can count all of the stars in, in the Milky Way galaxy alone? And then he says to Abraham, he says, so shall your offspring be. And, and catch this. He says, and this is what Paul is quoting. He says, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Did you catch that? He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul is showing is that it was never about works to begin with. And in the context, it's important to know that, that this is at least 14 years prior to Abraham even being considered a true Jew in the sense that he, had, he was not yet circumcised. Abraham, yet, he had not yet done anything to earn God's favor. It was by believing in the Lord that it was credited to him is righteous. The reason that that Abraham's faith honored God was that he believed that God could do what seemed impossible. He could could make his descendants as numerous as the stars and it's important to know that Abraham was probably in his mid-80s by now. God had brought him out of Ur of Chaldees around 70 something, 75-ish and he was probably about 85 now, somewhere in that range. And what God honored was his faith in God's ability, not his own ability. You know, he received God's righteousness by believing in God's ability, not by working. That's what Paul's saying. And he's saying that that we too, we receive God's righteousness by believing in God's ability, by his ability to make us righteous, not by working. It, it, It... Working relies on one's own ability, and the Apostle Paul, he goes on through that, and he, he explains that if you work, you're counting on your own ability, and so anything you get is a reward for that. But you know, you and I, we're, we're no more able to be righteous than Abraham was, even after we received God's promise through Jesus. So we need to know that it's, it's not about our works to begin with, and it's not our works that keep us. It's about believing in God's ability to keep us. What are you believing in this morning? Are you believing in God's ability not only to make you a Christian but to keep you? Are you believing in God's ability or are you trusting in your own ability? God's declared us righteous. He's promised to make us righteous. And the question is, will we trust in him to do what he said he'll do even when it seems impossible? Maybe you've got something going on in your life and you're thinking, you know what, God thanks you saved me, you give me your righteousness, but now I've got to make myself better by my own effort. I've got to change the situation by my own effort. Or God, I have to turn things around by my own effort. And the Apostle Paul, God would say, no, it's always by faith alone. It was about faith alone with Abraham. And then will we believe, though, and rely on God's ability? Or will we rely on our own feeble ability? But you know what? Our, our ability, it just, it just goes up and down. It's like a roller coaster. And that's the question. And so Paul answers that question in verse four. Look down in your Bible. It says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but his due. And what he's saying is that if somebody has a job, so imagine that, that I hire you to do some work around the yard and you do that work around the yard and I, and I tell you, hey, I'm going to pay you 15 bucks an hour to, to rake leaves. And then you go and you rake the leaves and I pay you afterwards. Is that a gift or is that payment? Paul says if you work, and you, and you get that payment, then it's not counted as a gift, but it is as due. And so if we could be given righteousness as a wage and payment for what we do, then we could boast, since our justification would really be payment for our work. But what he's saying is that it wasn't payment for work to begin with. It was, it was not payment for work to begin with because then it wouldn't be a gift. And, and, and Paul's all the way through the first three chapters of Romans has laid out that righteousness is a gift. It comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from Christ's imputed righteousness. And so he's saying that you know, if, you, if you could have worked, then it wouldn't have been a gift, but it's a gift and there's no way that you, your works can earn righteousness. If they couldn't earn righteousness to begin with, and they can't earn righteousness to continue. Look in verse five, it says, "To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. What he's saying is that God gives his free gift of eternal life and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Not to anybody who works, but to those who trust that God, you are the one who makes right the ungodly. And by the way, I'm ungodly. I need you to justify me. And that is the faith that's counted as righteousness, that's credited as righteousness. And God gives that free gift of his righteousness to all who believe in him. And then look down in verses 6 through 8. It wasn't just faith alone for Abraham. The Apostle Paul, he's using, he's using the heroes, really, of the Old Testament. He uses Abraham, the father of faith. And then King David, really the greatest king in Israel's history, the greatest leader in Israel's history to some degree. And he says that it wasn't just faith alone for Abraham, but he's, he's laying out this polemic. And he says, just faith alone for Abraham, and now it's faith alone for David. It was faith alone for David, and that's in verses 6 through 8 here. Look down at verse 7. David, he's quoting David from Psalm 32. And David here, he's singing. If If you're a good Jew, you would know that the background for this song is that David is singing of the Lord's forgiveness here because God forgave him after his egregious sins with Bathsheba. I want you to think about the context of this, of this quote that Paul uses when he says it's faith alone for David because in this context, David has only been ungodly. David's only failed at, in this psalm here. He's responding right after he's failed. David, for those who don't know the story, he's on top of the roof. He sees this good-looking woman who's married. He takes her. He commits adultery with her. Um, He finds out that her husband is away at the front, and so he tries to bring her husband back to cover it up so that he'll be with his wife and so that no one will know that David got her pregnant, but yet the husband is too righteous, and he says, No, how can I be with my wife when other men are out there dying on the front? And so David hang, Uriah hangs around, so David thinks, "Oh my gosh, what am I going to do?" And so he sends Uriah back to the front, carrying his own fate, really, his own message of doom, and he carries this 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 command to the leaders of the army of Israel that says Okay, I want you to take Uriah, put him on the front, and everybody advance. And when he advances and, and is fighting the enemy, every, all the other troops should withdraw and leave Uriah alone so that he'll be killed. But it won't look like it was on purpose. So David, he's not only sinned against Bathsheba. He's sinned against the righteous Uriah. He's sinned against his commanders by making them kill a man. He sins against the people of Israel by betraying the trust. He sins against the baby that he has with Bathsheba by killing the baby's father. He sins against Bathsheba by killing her husband. David's sins are just all over the place. He's not a righteous man in the context of Psalm 32 that Paul quotes. And yet, look in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. I think we have it for you on the overheads as well. David says, blessed is the one, and this is our hope this morning, by faith. He said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. We need to hear those words today too, don't we? Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, who, breaking the law without even knowing it, is forgiven, whose overt sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And then David explains what, try, what had happened when he tried to cover up his sin. In, in verses 3 through 10, David says, He says, For when I kept silent, my bones. I think we have this for you on the next slide as well. We should at least. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David tried to pretend that he wasn't sinful. And he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Have you ever felt that way when you tried to hide and you tried to trust in your own righteousness, your own goodness? Have you ever gotten to the place where it just felt like your bones were wasting away by groaning, that your God's hand was heavy, your strength was dried up? You know, it was only after David was confronted by Nathan the prophet that exposed his sin to David to repent. But listen to what he writes of his repentance. He says in verses 5 through 10, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity, although he, he kind of had. He says, I I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sins, selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found surely in the rush of great waters. They shall not reach him. And then finally in verse 10... He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways you go. I'll count you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed without bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And by the way, David here is proclaiming that he was wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But here's here's what Paul's drawing attention to. Here's why Paul's quoting that verse. He says, But steadfast love surrounds the one who what? Who trusts in the Lord. He's using David as an example of Faith alone, because it wasn't David's works. It wasn't his righteousness. It wasn't his ability to keep the law that made him righteous. God's forgiveness, his his covering over of David's sins, his making David right with him, his giving him steadfast love was all because of faith alone. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And that's what Paul's getting at. It's, it's truly blessed to, to trust in or have faith in God that's not dependent on what we do. It's, it's, it's by confessing our lack of works, by, by trusting in God that we can have our lawless sins forgiven, that we can have our sins covered over with the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's by trusting God that we receive his steadfast love. It's by faith alone. That's when we're blessed, not when we deserve God's forgiveness. That's what... Paul's getting at there with both Abraham and with David. It's not about earning, it's not about works, it's all about faith alone. And they counter this very legalism that the Jews in Paul's day were probably trying to foist on the Gentile believers in the entire church. Saying there's no boasting in in our works that doesn't make us righteous, didn't make father Abraham righteous, and it doesn't make David righteous. It was always by faith alone. And then he shows in verses 9 to 12 that it was really Faith alone for the Gentiles. And, and he uses Abraham as actually a representative not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Look in verses 9 to 12 of your Bibles. It was faith alone for Gentiles. He says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that Abraham, the faith but faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then he says, How was it counted? Before or after? He says, It was not after, look in verse 10, but before he was circumcised. And and, and he uses this word for credited 11 times in in Romans 4. It's more than any other count of any other book in the Bible about being credited. Being credited with righteousness. By, By faith, before Abraham was circumcised, he was credited as righteous, and I like how the, there's a new American standard, they have this New Testament Greek lexicon, and describes the root word, and it says, this word deals with reality, I like how it describes that, credited, we've been credited, this word deals with reality, if, if credited, or the Greek word for that, or reckon, if I reckon, or if, I, if, I cre- if I'm credited that my bank account has $25 in it, then it really has $25 in it, Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. And he goes on and says, the word refers to facts, not suppositions. So Paul here is using a a very real word. We've been credited. It's a reality. We've been actually given the very credit of Christ by faith alone. And how was that received? It was never about works. It was always, always and only by faith alone. And that's faith alone for the Gentiles as well. Because he says, well, it was before or after he was circumcised. He says, well, it wasn't after he was circumcised, it was before. And so Paul is saying, you know what, Abraham, you, you put all your trust, you descendants of Abraham, you put all your trust in being circumcised, in being the sign, the identifying feature of being a Jew, and you try to make everybody go and be circumcised. But guess what? Father Abraham was credited as righteousness and had nothing to do with being circumcised. And before that, it was like Abraham was like a Gentile, just like the Gentiles in the church there. And then he goes on in, in verse 11, and he says, he explains that this circumcision was a sign and it served like a seal. If you think about what a seal was or a sign was, it was, it was a sign or a seal was put on an official court documents or it would be put on a scroll so maybe the king would write a decree, he would write a command and it would be rolled up and then there would be put wax on it and there would be a sign or a seal pressed down on top of that decree, that command. But the seal was not the thing itself, right? The seal wasn't the, the, the decree, the seal wasn't what had happened The seal wasn't what the king had declared as true. The seal was just the authentication, just the outward identification that what was in was legitimate. And so Paul says this seal, this circumcision is just a sign. It's just a seal. It's just a seal or a sign on the outside of what had really gone on on the inside of righteousness by faith. And he says the whole point that God You know, God could have credited righteousness to Abraham after he became circumcised. And that's what Paul's saying here is that no, God did that on purpose. He credited righteousness to Abraham prior to circumcision, and, and, and some Jewish historians would say 29 years even, but many years at least prior to circumcision to show that salvation comes to the uncircumcised by faith and by faith alone. And that really, if, if anybody, Abraham was given a promise of descendants, but that promise was not given when Abraham was circumcised. So what was that promise based on, is what Paul's saying. He's saying that promise was always and only based on faith. And so true children of Abraham, children who receive all the promises of Abraham, are children by faith. And it says that he's, he's made Abraham the father of those who were uncircumcised as well as those who've been circumcised the same way as long as they follow in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. It was only those Jews that had faith in in God that were Abraham's children, just like it's only those non-Jews who have faith in God, who are God's children. And then he goes on to show that not only is it faith alone for Abraham, faith alone for David, faith alone for Gentiles, but it's also faith alone that transcends the law. Faith alone overcomes the law is greater than the law. Look in verses 13 to 15 there. It says the promise to Abraham as offspring that he would be the heir of the world didn't come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. You know when God made that promise to Abraham in, in Genesis 15 that his offspring would be greater than the stars of heaven he wasn't referring to physical offspring he was referring to the offspring according to faith is what Paul is saying. And not only was Abraham not circumcised, he was counted as righteous. At least, think about this, 430 years before the law of Moses was ever given. And Paul's saying, like, how did you lose your way? How did you miss that? How did you miss this? It's never been about works. You can never keep your own righteousness by works. And in fact, Abraham didn't even keep the law. It hadn't even come yet. It was 430 years later. He doesn't mention the years, but it was always before the law. Because he says in verse 14, If it's adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. What he means is that that promise that Abraham had been given and Abraham's faith, it would have been null and void because he didn't even have the law. He couldn't keep the law. He didn't have it. He couldn't keep his own righteousness by the law then. The promise would have been made void if it had anything to do with the law or works or swimming. So if it doesn't have anything to do with the law and it depends on faith alone, and the final point, really, in verse 16 that, that Paul makes is that it's faith alone for all mankind. Always. What he's saying is the whole point of God making his promise to Abraham and crediting Abraham's faith as righteousness is that so the promise has nothing to do with work. Do you, do you believe that, Christian? Do you rest in, do you trust in the fact that God's Promises don't come to you by your works, but by faith alone. Do you trust, do you believe, are you relying on day by day? Is that where your confidence is? Is that, wait a minute, I, I am not righteous before God to begin with, but I'm also not kept righteous, and I don't receive His promises by doing good works. I think we all struggle there. We, we all wrestle with these, these kind of low-level guilty feelings Often, by knowing that we don't, we don't do what's right, we know that we don't feel as righteous as God's declared us to be, and so it feels like a falsehood. But no, it's actually a reality that we're righteous. God has actually given us a real legal righteousness. It's only by God's grace that Abraham was guaranteed the promise, and it's only by God's grace that we're guaranteed his promises it's only by his grace through faith alone that we're sustained. So tomorrow morning when you come down off of whatever spiritual high you, you might be on and you realize that you mess up or you're impatient with your kids or you're angry with your spouse or you honk the horn at somebody you shouldn't or you say something you shouldn't to somebody early in the morning like I did this week, I said something sinful to a guy because I was just it was early, and I had been up early several mornings in a row. I was tempted, and I was impatient with somebody. I was unrighteous. But will we trust in faith alone, by grace alone, to make us righteous? Or will we trust in our own works? And how about when we relate to other people? Do you make other people conform to your works? Do you make other people look like you, like Paul's addressing the Jews here? Do you try to make them fit in and conform with your specific way of trying to please God? I mean, unless it's in the Bible clearly, we we may be cautious, but even then, it's not our own keeping of God's laws that makes us righteous. So don't look down on somebody else who even breaks the commandments because it's only by faith alone that we're saved, only by faith alone that we're kept. We're all in need of God's grace. You know, Dory couldn't make it to the end on her own. She needed somebody else to take her there. All of our swimming, it, it doesn't get us home on our own. All our swimming, all of our working, it doesn't make us acceptable to God. and doesn't get us to be with Him in eternity either. All of our swimming, all of our works it doesn 't make us righteous before god it doesn 't secure or keep our righteousness let 's say for a minute if you could let 's say that somebody here could could find God on their own effort well we 'd be struck dead if we trusted in our efforts because none of our efforts are ultimately acceptable and pleasing to god and paul 's went to the first a few chapters of Romans showing that all of our efforts are flawed because inherently we don't do the right things with the right motives. Even if we do happen to do the right things, we never do them to honor God. We never do them for God with God's glory in mind. We never do them perfectly. But we can take comfort, and that's why Paul's written these verses. He's written Romans 4 to give every believer comfort in Christ by faith alone. We don't need a slew of messages in this church. You know, you, we, we tend to preach expositorily through books of the Bible. There will be times we have series or sermon series on different topics to address that are relevant or pertinent. But in general, we don't want to be guided by the, the blowing winds of society around us. And we don't want to be constantly addressing what, what society thinks of the needs because society doesn't know what it needs. What we need is the righteousness of God that comes by faith alone. We don't, need, we don't need to have all of our current situations and circumstances or seasons of life addressed directly. What we need is a message that directly addresses all those areas that we struggle with that will sustain us and keep us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who gives us his righteousness, the one who maintains our righteousness, and the one who actually is actively working real righteousness in us by faith alone. So we can take comfort. Having the truth that will keep us through every season is greater than any and everything we need. We can be supported and carried and sustained and strengthened knowing that his righteousness is given to us by faith alone. And no matter what it even looks like when we're failing, we can actually have faith that he's working his active, actual righteousness in our lives as we have faith in him. See, it's not even our own faith that... that earns us or gets our righteousness. You know, so we're credited to righteousness, but you know, he's actively, in the process of what the Bible calls sanctification, making us who he's already declared and credited us to be. He's in that process of conforming us into his image. But you know what? That even doesn't come through works. We can have faith in God that he'll actually make us righteous. And Paul's intent has been to comfort those who are doubting and to give them trust in the promises of God. If you're doubting, if you're struggling, if you're dealing with with guilt, condemnation, if you're dealing with any of those things, then what we need is to say, God, thank you that it's by faith alone, by your grace alone, that I receive your righteousness and you will keep me. We don't have to be afraid when we sin. We're not distanced from God because because of our sin. He credits us with righteousness. He says, draw near to me when you mess up. When you need, when, you, when you're hurting, when you're failing. Why? Because you stand in my righteousness. Trusting in God, resting in the righteousness he credits us to, and, and working in a, that he's working in us. It removes all fear. It removes unrest. Is your soul at rest at times? Is it a place of unrest at times? We need, we need the message of faith alone. You ever get to the place where you're despairing of your own walk or of life? We need the message of faith alone. We can have confidence in what one commentator said long ago. He says, we can have a sure knowledge of of divine mercy, peace of conscience in the presence of God, and repose by faith alone. We can have, I love the way he puts that, sure knowledge of divine mercy. Do you have sure knowledge of divine mercy this morning? You can by faith alone. Do you have a peace of conscience in the presence of God? If not, you can by faith alone. Did you have a peace in the presence of God and repose? Just kind of, are you resting in God? You can have that rest by faith alone. I'm gonna close by reading a, a hymn by an old guy named Horatius Bonar who lived in the 1800s. And um, as I do, I'm gonna have the band go ahead and come up. It's, the hymn is not what these hands have done. And he says... Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. By the way, are there any guilty here? Are there any who, who feel like they're lacking in wholeness? He says, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my all full load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. God wants you to be set free in your spirits, trusting in him. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Don't you love that? Hear God's words of pardon. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. I would say Horatius Bonar is better than me because I can't even say with unfaltering lip and heart. But I do have the same faith. And so by faith alone, I call the Savior mine. I receive cleansing from my guilty soul. I receive rest that makes my spirit whole. I receive peace from God, easing of my sighs and tears. I receive by faith alone the relief of the weight of sin. And I believe God has it for you too. God wants to rid you of the dark unrest you've experienced and set your spirit free. Let's look together and make this Savior mine. mind. Amen? Let's stand and sing together, please.